Hello there, little masters, and welcome back. Welcome back to Bree and to the Prancing Pony Podcast. Step on up to the bar, mind the crowds. Tonight, the good stuff might just make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in that good stuff. <laughs> West Uhal, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, the nori to my dory, Alan oh. Sisto. Oh, 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 thank you, Sean. Well, folks, hopefully you caught our special episode on Thursday for the 80th anniversary of The Hobbit. That was the final episode of Season 1 of the Prancing Pony Podcast. It was really a, a fantastic discussion with Corey Olson, the mm-hmm. Tolkien professor himself. So if you yeah. haven't listened to that, please do. And if you did, you'll know that in today's episode, as we start Season 2, we finally start The Hobbit. Yay! But we're not going to start on the narrative just yet, are we? No, no, we're not. Boo. Uh, <laughs> boo. <laughs> we're not going to start reading tonight because we want to give a little introduction to The Hobbit, uh, a look back mm-hmm. at its history, uh, its composition, <laughs> start that over. Its, it's composition, compos- <laughs> its publication, its legacy, um, and hopefully a little time to talk about what it's meant to us. Um, those of you who have followed our last few episodes on The Silmarillion know that for all the major stories of Tolkien's Legendarium, we really like to take a little time to set each one in context, mm-hmm. give a little yeah. bit of that history. And I think for The Hobbit, obviously, we've got a lot to talk about, and I think we definitely have enough to fill an entire episode here tonight. Uh, yeah, I think we do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we'll spend our time in this episode doing exactly that, and that will send us off in style so that we can really get into the story next time. We promise. We promise we will start <laughs> reading the story in our next episode. We do promise. <laughs> Beginning, of course, with the very famous first sentence, a sentence upon which I have called dibs. Yeah, I, I have um, I have given it willingly. You know what? It's part of the A. a- Arendil deal. That's right. It was. Yeah. It was yeah, it A. Arendil for opening line of The Hobbit and a second round draft pick. <laughs> Um, That's right. <laughs> and, and, and cash considerations. Um, but before we uh, get... Wait, I don't remember that one. <laughs> 20% of your earnings from this show. Oh, that, that'll <laughs> Let me be see. Easy. That'll be easy. Times zero, yeah. carry the zero. Carry the zero and divide by, <laughs> divide by zero. Uh, there's your Firefly reference for the night, folks. Yeah, we go. already have digressed and it's only two and a half minutes in. <laughs> so um, before, we, uh, before we dig in, I think it's time... For a Tolkien fun fact. Yay! It's been a while Yay. since we've done one of these. Far uh, too long. Far too long indeed. Uh, we are going to try to do a better job of mm-hmm. including this segment more often because we actually yeah. do have a lot of good ones lined up for you. We really do. And you know what? We're actually, uh, spoilers, we're actually looking at possibly introducing a couple of new segments too. Maybe so. That's so what season stay, two is all about. Stay, folks. Tuned stay tuned for that. Season two, onward and upward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tonight's fun fact uh to get us back into the swing here, comes to us from Humphrey Carpenter's J.R.R. Tolkien, A Biography. Of course, this is one of our favorite sources here. It is. Now, of course, we all know that our dear Professor Tolkien was English, uh, seemingly as English as they come, right? From (laughs) Birmingham in the West Midlands and uh, probably English enough to call it Birmingham. Um, oh, yes. Unlike myself. Um, obsessed with the language and culture of that part of England. But as a few of our listeners probably know, his surname was actually Mm -hmm. German. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Humphrey Carpenter tells the story of how how Tolkien's Aunt Grace explained the family name to him. And I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit from Carpenter right now. Please do. Please do. She alleged that the family name had originally been von Hohenzollern, for they had emanated from the Hohenzollern district of the Holy Roman Empire. 
A certain George von Hohenzollern had, she said, fought on the side of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria at the Siege of Vienna in 1529. Wow. He had shown, I know, he had shown great daring in leading an unofficial raid against the Turks and capturing the Sultan's standard. This, said Aunt Grace, was why he was given the nickname Tolkun, foolhardy, and the name stuck. The family was also supposed to have connections with France and to have intermarried with the nobility in that country, where they acquired a French version of their nickname, Du Temeraire. Opinion differed among the Tolkien sisters. Can you do that again? I like hearing you speak in French. (laughs) Du Temeraire. Oh, the trill. That was very... Oh, merci, merci. (laughs) Well done. Four years of high school French. That's what that does for you. (laughs) Uh, opinion differed among the Tolkien's as to why and, <laughs> and when. That's all it does for you. <laughs> I can order. I can order cheese, like you have no idea. Just don't try ordering ice water. They don't have it, and they won't bring it to you. No, no. <laughs> that's what you, I hear. You can get still. I think you can order still water or uh, or sparkling water. Fuzzy water. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there we go again. <laughs> I know. My apologies. Anyway, folks. picking up at Du Temeraire. Yeah. Uh, opinion different among the Tolkien's as to why and when their ancestors had come to England. The more prosaic said it was in 1756 to escape the Prussian invasion of Saxony, where they had lands. Mm-hmm. Aunt Grace preferred the more romantic, if implausible, story of how one of the Du Temeraires had fled across the Channel in 1794 to escape the guillotine, apparently then assuming a form of the old name, Tolkien. My goodness. Isn't that well, cool? Well, you know, the, that is really cool. Even if, the, it's, even if it's not entirely true, it's a great well, yeah, story. It, it may be exaggerated or made out of a whole cloth. I don't, it doesn't <laughs> matter. It's a pretty cool story. It's a great story. Um, you know, and the first thing that strikes me about this is this foolhardy ancestor of Tolkien's reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Bandabras Took. Yeah. <laughs> I, kinda, I can't help but wonder if Tolkien's inserted a bit of himself into Bilbo's family history as a no, we would say that he inserted quite a bit of his own personality into Bilbo. You know, I, I've I've had similar thoughts along those lines. I I actually have even wondered. Uh, I've gone so far with that that, and this is just total speculation. I've oh, even we don't do that if, here. No, never, <laughs> never, ever. Um, I've even wondered if the family name Took itself was inspired by the name Tolkien. Um, hmm. You know, remember the old thing that Gandalf used to say to Pippin? You know, fool of a Took. That's um, true. I I almost dare say that you know Took could be a, a shortened form of Tolkien, almost in the same way that maybe hmm. Hobbit is said to have been derived from the Old English Hobbitla. You know, I mean, really, wow, almost the same thing. You know, you drop a you drop an L, you drop a last syllable, and and you can get Took from Tolkien. That is total speculation. I am basing yeah. that on nothing, but uh, but it is a it's a crazy <laughs> thought I had once. Nothing but your wild desires nothing for that to be true. <laughs> I just I really do want it to be true. It is it's true. Pretty and, cool. And if anybody knows for a fact that it's not true, please tell me. But um, <laughs> or don't. But I, I, I like <laughs> don't it. Tell me, please. I like it. <laughs> you know, the other thing I'm reminded of, and I, and I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to bring this in back when we talked about the story of Turin, but uh, we didn't have time because we spent so much time That's what it was when you mentioned Captain mm-hmm. Foolhardy, huh? Mm-hmm. Yep. There's that moment I in the Silmarillion when Glaurung calls Turin Captain Foolhardy. And uh, and I thought immediately of this this Tolkien ancestor. Now, I mean, and, you know, fortunately, I I'd forgotten it all about it. So I was yeah. sitting there like a complete idiot, going, <laughs> "What are you What are you hinting at, Sean? What I know, I was all mysterious. It, it worked very well. Yes, you were. But uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking about here. Now, you know, fortunately, the professor's mysterious ancestor wasn't doomed like the son of Hurin was. Well, but, thankfully. Uh, and I guess I'm glad he got married and fathered a child, which is not something I would say about <laughs> the son of Hurin. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, was that but, too soon? Maybe that was no, too soon. No, no, it's not too soon. Never too soon. <laughs> the stone of the hapless is still around, so it's okay. We can. That is you know. very true. But, you know, I have a question. Did old George von oh, 
did George von Hohenzollern, oh, I think I might have gotten that. That's what two years of German in high school Sounds good to me, yeah. Did he knock the sultan's head clean off with a club, only to have it sail 100 yards through the air and go straight down a rabbit hole? (laughs) Now, I doubt that. (laughs) And invented Das Golf? Das Golf at the same time. The the Volkswagen Golf. Ooh. Um, Well, maybe with that terrible pun. (laughs) Oh, man. Let's get on with The Hobbit. Now, one, one last thing before we start proper. We're going to be referencing several sources throughout the episode, and these are all resources that would be a great add to your Tolkien shelf. Of course, we have links available on our library page for you, but here's a list of what we're using, and these are sources that we're going to use to help us as we work our way through The Hobbit. So for the next, I don't know how many episodes, I don't want to say a chapter an episode or, you know, two episodes per chapter, probably somewhere in between. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'd guess that we're probably going to have 30 or 35 episodes uh, going through The Hobbit. But here yeah, are the sources. Probably about right. Yeah. Uh, we've got The History of the Hobbit by John Ratliff, mm-hmm. uh, The Annotated Hobbit, Annotations by Douglas Anderson. The J.R.R. Tolkien Reader's Guide by Christina Skull and Wayne Hammond. Uh, Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit by Corey Olson, which we Mm -hmm. talked about at length last episode, just a whopping, what, three days ago. Yep. Uh, And and two other works that we've referenced before, uh, both by Humphrey Carpenter, the biography of Tolkien, and then the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, which he Mm -hmm. edited. So we do all the reading so you don't have to. But you should. You definitely should. And yeah, hopefully we've really convinced should. you by now to go pick up Corey Olson's book, Explorer oh, yeah. J.R.R. Tolkien's Man, The Hobbit. Super, awesome book. It's a, it's a great book. It's a super easy read. And, and it's a um, perfect companion. You read a chapter in The Hobbit and then you read a chapter in his book. And you can go back and, and read a, a, a chapter of, of Olson. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the others are um, – there's a there's – a, there's a lot there in some of the there's other ones. But, um, and some of but, them are a little harder to get through. I mean, yeah. I'll be honest. Yeah, they are. They're great sources, but they're not as easy to read. I think Olson did a really good job of – of creating really, a good really making it there. digestible and really, exactly. really, Very really focusing on the text and really yes. um, making the text more accessible as opposed Absolutely. to going deep into you know the history of the text and all the changes to the text and, all the, and things yeah. like that. Like some yeah, which is fascinating in its own right, but I agree that, that I, I if, think they're all good companions one, to each other, definitely. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say if you could only pick up one. I would say if you could only pick up one, I'd almost want to say The Annotated Hobbit, but I don't know. Olson's I, you know, book would probably be the other one. That's a good – the Annotated Hobbit is a good one because I, from what I understand, that is the most accurate text of The Hobbit that is mm-hmm. out there yeah. in any edition. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, the annotations are really oh, easy. Man. You know, they're right there in the columns right exactly. next to Exactly. You don't have to look uh, stuff up. It's all in the yeah. same book. It does mm-hmm. a lot more about uh, – it gives a lot more insight into what happened after the book was published. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, does. As it opposed does to, um, you know, sort of the, the development of it. Which would be, yeah, which I is more Ratliff's focus. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we we digress. You'll you'll get a we sense do. of kind of what comes from each of these books as we that's as we true. Talk you tonight, really will. You know, Just tonight, you'll get you'll, a, you'll a get a sense of each that. the angle you know of each one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think we should start with the most famous account of the origin of the most famous first line in possibly all of literature. Sean, you have a passage from Carpenter's biography on this, don't you? I do. It, I do. The, 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 the composition of the first line of The Hobbit is just one of my favorite stories, as I, I hope mm-hmm. to spend a little time on uh, later today. But, yeah. um, but this version of the story comes from the very end of the chapter, The Storyteller, in part four of Carpenter's biography. And, and I apologize. I'm going right back to a, a nice long quote from Carpenter. <laughs> Never a bad thing. <laughs> Uh, So this is from the very end of that chapter. He says, So it was that during the 1920s and 30s, Tolkien's imagination was running along two distinct courses that did not meet. On one side were the stories composed for mere amusement, often specifically for the entertainment of his children. 
On the other were the grander themes, sometimes Arthurian or Celtic, but usually associated with his own legends. Meanwhile, nothing was reaching print, beyond a few poems in the Oxford magazine which indicated to his colleagues that Tolkien was amused by dragon's hordes and funny little men with names like Tom Bombadil. A harmless <laughs> pastime, they felt, if a little childish. Something was lacking, something that would bind the two sides of his imagination together and produce a story that was at once heroic and mythical, and at the same time tuned to the popular imagination. He was not aware of this lack, of course, nor did it seem particularly significant to him when suddenly the missing piece fell into place. It was on a summer's day, and he was sitting by the window in the study at Northmore Road, laboriously marking school certificate exam papers. Years later, he recalled, one of the candidates had mercifully left one of the pages with no writing on it, which is the best <laughs> thing that can possibly happen to an examiner, and I wrote on it, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Oh. Names always generate a story in my mind. Eventually, I thought I'd better find out what hobbits were like. But that's only the beginning. Oh, boy, is that an understatement. That's oh. only the beginning. That's, that's the beginning of so much. the beginning. Uh, wow. I, I, I have always loved that story. I'll, I'll, maybe yeah, we'll talk a little bit story, more isn't it? about that later on. I just I always thought that that was so cool. That that's, that's where the story came from, just from this one line. Um, yeah. I think, you know, by now we've spent enough time looking at the history of Tolkien's writing that, you know, some things about this really should not surprise us. You know, things yeah. like the fact that Tolkien has to discover what it exactly. means. He has to find out find what hobbits out. were like. Not you know, I have to make up what hobbits are right, like. I have to right. find out. Like, they really are. And they really, are really thing, like a particular and, thing. And I need to find out what they are. And yeah. I need to find it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that takes me right back to things like, you know, even the Arendelle story, you know, oh, yeah. I, I'll have to find out who he is, things like that. Exactly. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly when he wrote it, right? Um, no. Or how long afterwards it was that he decided to turn it into a story. I think there, there are a few different versions of, mm -hmm. you know, how long it took between, you know, the writing of this, this serendipitous inspired first line and when he actually turned it into, you know, into I a wonder, story. did he tear that page out or did he leave it in the exam paper? I have always wondered that. And if that was your exam paper, please tell me you held on to it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I would love to know if that exam paper is out there somewhere. And if, if some oh, student man. got this back and probably was very angry at all the red marks and probably threw it right away. But <laughs> <laughs> and didn't even look to the back and Having saw no it hole in the ground. How historical would it be? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I love this. I mean, it's just a yeah. wonderful story. And it, it shows that for Tolkien, these stories – often just came to him yeah, uh, in, in such a spectacular way, sometimes fully formed. In this case, not. He'd had no idea what a hobbit was, but he had the word. And for him, yeah. words meant so much that here he's got this starting point, this magnificent starting point. Yeah. But um, flash of inspiration. I mean, that's a word, absolutely. That's a, a phrase people, you know, bandy about a lot. But yeah. I mean, in, in this it case, it doesn't it really apply very often, true. but it does here. It really does. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of the, the chronology, uh, you know, even he seemed a little confused about it. There's a bunch of different – he says some <laughs> yeah, different things depending know, on yeah. who he was talking to and when. Um, in, a, in a 1957 interview, he said that it was only some months later when he thought that the opening words of The Hobbit were too good to leave just on the back of an examination mm, paper. Yeah. I wrote the first chapter first and then I forgot about it. Then I wrote another part. I myself can still see the gaps. There's a very big gap after they reached the Eyrie of the Eagles. After that, I really didn't know how to go on. That's right, yeah. And I think Ratliff identified some of that, too, and he, as yeah. he was sort of um, figuring out where the major gaps were in the composition of the story. So that was 
So that was the 1957 interview, right? Yeah. So it was some months later. (laughs) I know there's another interview out there, right? That was, there's one, I think, in 1967 where he Mm -hmm. said that it was years before the story grew, right? Yep. Yep. And then um, there's another one that I've got here that was from 1966 where he said that he wrote the first line and then he said, I had no idea what a hobbit was. Or perhaps I did sense it was a little creature of some sort, but I had never heard the word and had never used it. Then I decided, here is the beginning of a good book for my children, and I began to write. So that one makes it sound like he started writing immediately. Yeah, yeah. Man, so, that's... Uh, <laughs> well, I know. You know I, as we know, depending on when he was asked, his recollections of things, you know, were not always... Uh, yeah. Well, entirely you know, I mean, complete. I'm I mean, not going to say they were inaccurate. They just weren't complete. These are media interviews, 20 and 30 yeah. and f- probably well, close to 40 years. Is, 1967 yeah. would have been nearly 40 years Almost after, 40 he, started years after he started to write it. Yeah. yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. I, I'm lucky if I can remember what happened a week ago Tuesday. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I mean, granted, Tolkien, you know, has forgotten more than I ever learned. But, uh, <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it's pretty easy to, to understand why somebody couldn't quite remember the exact timeline of something yeah, that happened sure. 40 years ago. But however long it took him, we know that uh, he did read it to his kids while it was in development. I mean, that's the famous thing. We know that he read this to his kids, right? We hear this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he said this himself several times. But really what's cool is there are a bunch of recollections from the Ch- Tolkien children themselves about him reading parts of the story to them at these winter reads. Mm, right. And and the best one of these has got to be from Christopher. Um, it's a long one, but it is so worth it. I absolutely love this story. So I'm going to read this. Um, so Christopher says, my father would stand with his back to the fire in his small study of the house in North Oxford, 22 North Moor Road, and tell stories to my brothers and me. And Michael, that's his older brother, said that he remembered with perfect clarity the occasion when my father said that he was going to start telling us a long story about a small being with furry feet and asked us what he should be called and then answering himself saying, I think we'll call him a hobbit. Since my family moved from that house at the beginning of 1930, and since my brother preserved stories of his own in imitation of The Hobbit, which he dated 1929, he was convinced that The Hobbit began, at any rate, no later than that year. His opinion was that my father had written the opening sentence in the summer before he began telling us the story, and that he repeated those opening words as if he had invented them on the spur of the moment. He also remembered that I, then between four and five years old, so here I am picturing Christopher <laughs> Tolkien as a four or five-year-old, mm-hmm. and that's pretty easy to do since I've got a since five-year-old. that's just the age of, of, of our sons. Of our boys. Right in there, yeah. So he also remembered that I was greatly concerned with petty consistency as the story <laughs> unfolded. And I can tell you that's true. <laughs> I'm reading the, the total, total digression. I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia right now to my son. Um, and Are you really? He, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, we've. We're on the fourth book, I think. Are you really? Um, We're on the second. Yeah, he loves it. I mean, it, it's just complicated enough for him to stop and ask questions, but it's not so complicated like The Lord of the Rings or even to some extent mm-hmm. The Hobbit itself. Yeah. So anyway, back to the... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've done The Hobbit with my son and it's... Yeah, uh, I know. You did it, it early. It, he was, it was three, huh? 
Uh, yeah, and it was yeah, he he stopped to ask a lot of questions, but yeah, um, yeah. Then we he he wanted Lord of the Rings after that, but I said no, dude. You're no, not you're not ready for that, for that dude. No, <laughs> so not that's what a I, chance. That's when I went to Narnia, and I'm doing. I'm uh, not. I'm not dealing with Nazgul nightmares. No, for no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> so I'm like, here. This book was written by uh, by the friend of the guy who wrote yeah. The Hobbit. Here, we're gonna yeah, read, let's these, read books these. And, and he's digging Narnia. So oh yeah, oh man, anyway. so is my son. Absolutely loving it. But anyway, um, so going Sorry. back to this, because because you know. Uh, I totally can see this because he's the same way. He's an absolute stickler for detail, and he oh, wants yeah, to yeah. know. So here's for the four- or five-year-old Christopher Tolkien. Greatly concerned with petty consistency as the story unfolded, and that on one occasion I interrupted, last time you said Bilbo's front door was blue, and you said that Thorin had a golden tassel on his hood, but you've just said that Bilbo's front door was green and that Thorin's hood was silver. At which my father muttered, damn the boy, and then strode across <laughs> the room to his desk to make a note. <laughs> I love that. That is brilliant. That one, if, I, I oh cracked man. up reading that one. Just yeah. absolutely phenomenal. I, <laughs> I know that they're talking about making, I think there's two biopics in the in the works for, for Tolkien's life. I believe so. And yeah. I, I tell you, if they do, I, I'd love to have this. I would love there. to see one with the Tolkien children. Yeah. And, and and Tolkien himself saying, damn the boy. Yeah, and Walking across the room to make a note. I know. It's great. Oh, well, and, you stuff. know, having read, you know, so much of what Christopher Tolkien did and putting his I father's know. text together. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's yeah. So he's so precise. He's it's not surprising. And precise. <laughs> I, I mean, he has a, a real love for accuracy there. And, he and does. thank goodness for us that he does. Oh, but, uh, yeah. I can yeah. imagine it being very frustrating for a father. <laughs> I can just see him kind of rolling his <laughs> eyes. like, Especially as he's I trying to write this story, you know. Can't get anything past the kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's great. I love it. That is awesome stuff. Yeah, we probably we probably need to make a, a little point about the um, about the address, right? The twenty two Northmore Road, oh, yeah, and yeah. the timing of this because I think um, you know not not to question Christopher's recollection, but I think Ratliff no. has done a, a a lot of work on the mm-hmm. true chronology, and he he has he has reasons to believe that maybe it was actually a little later that maybe the the mm-hmm. kids' recollections might have been. Um, you know, a little off. Maybe it was actually at um, after they moved to uh, to Twenty Northmore Road, mm-hmm. uh, which was in 1930. Um, I, I can't. I don't have the book in front of me, and I can't remember right. all the details of like how he arrived at this. But you know, we'll we'll talk about you know. Well, and the, and the letter that I just read, the, the, or I should say, the recollection I read is Christopher's recollection of his brother's recollection. Okay, right. I mean, it's so that was because Mike, Christopher that's himself right, was four Michael. or five. That's doesn't right. remember it himself. So he wouldn't so he goes, remember. So he's no. going from Michael's recollection. He's right? saying, you know, Michael remembered when this happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But again, that's the example of like the great kind of stuff that's in Ratliff's book is you yeah. know, he, you know, he goes through all this family, so all these detail. family records and recollections and figures out, well, this doesn't quite match up, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this does. And it's a great book. But um, the, there's another recollection that I remember. And I think this one. This one was from Christopher because Christopher actually mentioned it mm-hmm. in one of his letters to Father Christmas. Um, those yeah. of you who remember our episode when we read oh, that was fun. Uh, Tolkien's letters from Father Christmas back to the kids, one of his letters um, that he wrote to Father Christmas actually in 1937. So this mm-hmm. would have been the year The Hobbit was finally published. I think um, that was when Christopher said, uh, Daddy wrote it ages ago and read it to John, Michael, and me in our <laughs> winter reads after tea in the evening. But the ending chapters were rather roughly done and not typed out at all. He finished it about a year ago, so wow. uh, so that gives us a you know a date of you know 1936 you know being yeah when it was finished, which is probably which makes when, sense for when he actually got the typescript off to Alan and Unwin yeah. and everything yeah yeah and then that would give him time to do all the yeah 
But clearly, I mean, clearly, as I think we all can probably guess, um, this story was a huge part of the Tolkien children's lives. Oh, yeah. And that's and that's really cool. Um, it really is. I love it. Well, it's so much a part of their lives that, uh, you know, Michael Tolkien ended up making up characters that were clearly. Right. <laughs> what, I was reading a few of them. Phil Pot Buggins. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And, yeah. And there then a bunch was, of others, was too. there like Olam, the giant Olam. frog. and That's right. And the wizards. The, there's like the Scandalf, the bean piper. Scandalf. You know. Scandal. So that's exactly what kids do. They take the sound and they kind of just tweak it a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, hilarious stuff. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, definitely clearly just such a huge part of their lives. And that's, and that's oh, yeah. so cool. Yeah. That's the thing. But Ratliff, you know, really sorted through all that evidence, like you said. And, and he's, uh, his, his claim, he lands very firmly. Uh, he says that with some confidence that the story was indeed begun in the summer of 1930 and completed in January 1933. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to go into all the the supporting detail, but trust me, he makes a compelling argument. For a- that. Absolutely compelling argument, and I, I would I would definitely I trust his assertion on this. And you know, even though it flies directly in contradiction to the recollections to some of the, of, to uh, some the, of the memories, children. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But but yeah. no, I mean, he seems to have done his homework, and uh, and oh, he lays yeah. it all out really nicely. And just and just this is all just in the introduction <laughs> to, to I know. that book, it's which just is like the first twenty or thirty pages. Yeah. I think the the other thing that I really liked about the Ratliff, um, you know, Ratliff's look at this whole thing was just the way mm-hmm. he um, he looked at the paper that was used and he looked at the yeah. writing style of the manuscript. Yep. And he actually figured out that the manuscript was written in uh, in these bursts during vacations mm-hmm. um, between academic semesters. So that makes figured sense. That's when Tolkien's got his free time. Right. So. Right. Um, he's not writing this whole thing while he's grading papers. He's, no, <laughs> he's no, taking breaks true. and uh, he's writing it during his breaks. And so um, because of that, uh, Ratliff has identified three sudden and marked changes. I'm quoting from Ratliff here. Three uh-huh. sudden and marked changes in writing paper and handwriting that mark the long hiatuses uh, between okay. these between these different. Um, and that makes sense. You know, so, it's something so we're you looking wouldn't at pick up if he was for, just typing. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just saying it's the kind of thing you wouldn't pick on uh, pick up on if he was just right. typing it on a word processor on a computer. It's right. neat that because this happened then, you know, we're able to really, of course, then again, those things would be timestamps. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, he's really, Ratliff's just done a ton of work. If we haven't yeah. convinced yeah, you yet to go out and buy a copy of this book, The History of the Hobbit. Um, uh, yeah. Seriously, just go out and buy The History of the Hobbit. It's uh, You really should. It's just keep in mind, it's not like something you're going to sit down and read, you know, one no. evening. No, it's it's a it's a great analysis. It's actually got the whole text of, you yeah. know, the manuscript slash typescript, mm-hmm. um, you know, published. And then he's got all these great little essays. We've got, you know, there's things in there like um, the names of, you know, goblins, not the names oh, of yeah. goblins, but the name, you know, the word goblins. And, right, you, right. Um, the, the stuff from about, stuff about the Arkenstone. Yeah, yes. right. Exactly. Yeah. Which we referenced back when we were talking about right. the Silmaril, Arkenstone, right? Right. The, right. Uh, yeah, how the Arkenstone was really kind of inspired by his own. Inspired by the Silmarils, yeah, yeah, not the Silmarils, stuff. but inspired by the Silmarils, and I think we talked about exactly. that a little bit with uh, with Corey Olson too. We did, but uh, it's just it's a it's a fantastic analysis of you know basically everything up to the publication of the Hobbit, and yeah, and I just think it's a it's a nice companion to the annotated Hobbit, which is probably mm-hmm. the more approachable work that kind of yeah. gives you more of the history of the book after publication and some of the right, changes like, that were made after. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, the, there's in Ratliff's book, we get this kind of this breakdown of the composition of these three phases. Um, there's 
six pages of manuscript that he calls, and I'm, I'm probably not even going to pronounce this right, Prifton, the Prifton fragment. That's how I. That's thing. how I think of it. Yeah, Prifton. I think of it too. I mean, it. You know, um, the the name of the dragon back then was was called Prifton. Smaug was actually Prifton in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and that also includes twelve pages of of typed script uh, that I believe he called the Bladorthan or Bladderthan yeah. type script right. because that's what Gandalf's name was at that point. <laughs> that's what the wizard was called. Yeah, and Thank Gandalf was he actually got a new name. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like Bl- Bladderthan. If it's pronounced Bladderthan, I kind of like that. Well, no, I don't like Bladderthan. Never mind. As soon as that's I said it aloud, I realized yeah. I don't like it. That's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, I'm oh, sure it's Bladorthan. It's probably Bladorthan. You're probably right, but that yeah. just sounds like a you know like a pharmaceutical. I was about to say that it does sound like. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, in that in that early version, what because uh, for your Gen- blood pressure needs, please speak with a physician. Please speak with a with a physician before taking Bladorthan. Yeah. <laughs> Bladorthan may make you late for dinner. Known. May take you yeah. on adventures. May hook you up with doors. <laughs> Certain side effects have been noted. Yeah. Side <laughs> effects include finding yeah. magic rings, <laughs> including. <laughs> Finding your Turkish side. There you go. Anyway, um, and there's a second phase, and he talks about that, and, and it, where it gets the story up to the right before the breakout of the the war, the gathering of the clouds. Um, there is a, a chunk in there where he he stopped writing, uh, and then of course um, you know the the third phase, which is the rest of the story that he wrote after the gathering of the clouds. So you really see the time that it took Tolkien to write each segment yeah. of the story, uh, and you get all the manuscript and typescript that developed behind it before mm-hmm. it got to the final version. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool. Kind of like and that's something you don't get. Of, and that's oh, something no. you don't get in Carpenter in Carpenter's book. Oh, not you know, at Car- all. Carpenter's book has that has that little passage uh, you know about imagining Tolkien at his writing desk every night and um, you know uh, Ratliff you know has found pretty conclusively it seems that that you know really wasn't the case. It was a, it was yeah, these these bursts yeah. and um, these long hiatuses. That makes sense. He was he was using his spare time, and as mm-hmm. as um, uh, Tom Shippey told us, how much is a professor's spare time <laughs> right. worth? Right. Well, we are in a unique position to tell you absolutely nothing. <laughs> Very well done. Well done. And I and if I he, love if he ever hears that, I'm going to be in so much trouble. <laughs> I love I love the Shippey's observation that Tolkien was probably using uh, the Oxford. Oh yes, school ink, well. ink from the school well. Yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah. good stuff. Oh, my. Now, you know, one important thing, especially because we're coming to this from the Silmarillion, is that when he was working on this, it was not originally supposed to be connected with the Silmarillion material. That's it's true. Yeah. That's key because I think that's why there's such a tonal difference between those two works. I mean, you think there's a tonal difference between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you, yeah. there's a huge tone, tone difference between yeah, yeah. The Hobbit and The Silmarillion. Um, in, a, in a 1964 letter to um, Christopher Bretherton, I don't know who or who you know who or what he is, uh, but it's letter 257. Tolkien said that by the time the Hobbit appeared, which was 1937, this matter of the elder days was in coherent form. The Hobbit was not intended to have anything to do with it. It had no necessary connection with the mythology, but naturally became attracted toward this dominant construction in my mind, causing the tale to become larger and more heroic as it proceeded. Even so, it could really stand quite apart except for the references. And he goes on to think like references to Gondolin and stuff like that. Right. Gondolin and Elrond. And, right. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. The, and the three kindreds of elves and so forth. Yeah. yeah. It, it, and I like this, this, um, 
the way he describes this is, you know, the tale becoming larger and more heroic mm-hmm. as it proceeded, because you certainly see that in the book itself. You really um, do. You look yeah. at, you know, things like um, the Battle of the Five Armies compared to, you know, the beginning of the story, you know, maybe oh, the, yeah. the encounter with the three trolls. It's it's just much bigger. It's much, it's, it's much bigger scope. Yeah, more heroic, um, like you said. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and I think it you really get the sense that it was the time he spent with it that kind of, you know, mm-hmm made it change there's that uh, there's also the letter to wh auden uh, letter 163 mm-hmm. where tolkien said the hobbit was originally quite unconnected uh, mm-hmm. though inevitably got drawn into the circumference of the greater construction that being you know the mythology of the first right. age and in the event modified it Which so of course it did, yeah. you know it, it it starts out unconnected then it <laughs> becomes a part of it and then ends up and then modifies modi- it yeah. having this you know Irrevocable change on the entire sure. mythology, so much so that Lord of the Rings is now the main story of it. Um, yeah, yeah, really fascinating how that happened. You know, and and I love both of those letters, but um, he said it best in our favorite letter, the one we reference nearly every episode, <laughs> of letter number one thirty one, to good old Milton Waldman. The Hobbit, which has much more essential life in it, was quite independently conceived. I didn't know as I began it that it belonged, but it proved to be the discovery of the completion of the whole, its mode of descent to Earth and merging into history. As the high legends of the beginning are supposed to look at things through elvish minds, so the middle Mm. tale of The Hobbit takes a virtually human point of view. And the last tale, he's talking about Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. blends them. I love that. I I I love that. Yeah, the descent, this image of the descent to earth of the Silmarillion matter. I know. And and this, you know, merging into history, you know, becoming less mythological and becoming more historical. Absolutely. Um, And that's what you see with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's something we talked about from the, even from the beginning of the Silmarillion, right? Mm -hmm. You get, you know, the grand creation of the universe, and then we start to get. You know, epic stories, epic stories, and then turning mm-hmm. into less epic and more heroic. It, and it becomes you know, right, exactly. The scale goes from vast to small, but still on that elvish scale. Right. Well, you know, and, I mean, and even the tales of Baron and Luthien, even though it's Baron, yeah, it's still yeah. a, an elvish tale. Absolutely, um, yeah, because the elves are still, you know, sort of the movers yeah. and shakers of the yeah, first age. Yeah, they absolutely and, are. Um, even and then in that the, transitions in The Hobbit to be yeah. this human point of view and right. through, through The Hobbits. I mean, we... Right, of course, yeah. The yeah. hobbits, you know, being a subset of men, yeah. Exactly, and then the the blending of them in the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that because you know this we 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 talked so much about the Silmarillion and the you know the some have saids of the Silmarillion, yes. and remember yes. that that is those are elvish tales passed mm-hmm. on through men. You know, this that is all. Those are all you know orally transmitted stories. Whereas the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings within within the Legendarium, well, they right. are firsthand accounts. Yes, and they so are. they really are historical with, of course, a few embellishments from Bilbo. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the, the composition, you know, the actual mm-hmm. process of, of writing the story. Right. Let's go ahead and talk about what it was like to actually get this thing published. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the story is really <laughs> just—it's just as good a story, I'd say. I mean, it is. It um, is. So once he had this complete home manuscript, the one he'd been reading um, to his kids, the one he'd been reading to his kids, and it, it's you know sort of cobbled together different you know different typefaces and things like that. Right. Um, he started loaning it out to his friends, um, and uh, and oh, he, I know, right? I know. Brave, brave man. Brave um, man, and I'm thinking, what lucky friends. Oh, that, that too, yeah. <laughs> well, of course, you know, not surprisingly, uh, C.S. Lewis was one of the first people to read it. Um, there's yeah. a fantastic quote um, by C.S. Lewis uh, about reading The Hobbit for the first time. It's actually from, 
I, you know, I just saw it. I saw it in a meme online not long ago. Um, mm-hmm. So it's definitely going around. But this one's from a 1933 letter to his friend Arthur Greaves, and he he wrote to to his friend. Since term, I have had a delightful time reading a children's story, which Tolkien has just written. I have told of him before, the one man absolutely fitted, if fate had allowed, to be a third in our friendship in the old days, mm-hmm. for he also grew up on W. Morris and George MacDonald. Uh, reading his fairy tale has been uncanny. It is so exactly like what we would both have longed to write or read in 1916, mm-hmm. so that one feels he is not making it up, but merely describing the same world into which all three of us have the entry. Whether it is really good, I think it is till the end, is of course another question. Still more, whether it will succeed with modern children. Yeah, good question. It's interesting that he didn't like the end. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I do love that. I mean, he really does capture that, doesn't it? This idea that this is a world that this is a story we would have wanted to read. Yeah, when we were young. Yeah, and not little, little. I mean, 1916. uh, You know, right before the breakout of World War One, we're talking about young adults here, not not young kids, but um, right. Uh, you know, he'd had this depth of appreciation of fantasy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I love that description of describing a world into which all three of us yeah. have the entry. First of all, it reminds me incredibly of Narnia. Doesn't um, it? Yeah, the door, knowing where the doors are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, it's also it's such a, a such a great metaphor for this idea of this secondary world. You know, it right. becomes this real world. It's there yeah. whether you're reading it or not. Yeah. Um, and and the book is just an entry point into that. And I thought that was really cool. And, uh, Absolutely. Just a just a neat a neat quote about you get a little bit of you, you see a little bit of their friendship Lewis and you Tolkien's do. friendship he kind of sense this kindred spirit that he recognizes. I'm hoping in we Tolkien. get to touch more on that at some point. Maybe a Tolkien fun. We fact should. On the road. Yeah, we should was, look in, look into that. There was some tension there too. I mean, some of the there is a letter oh, that yeah. Tolkien wrote that really slammed Lewis for his view on on divorce. Um, you know, because of. Tolkien's strong Catholic upbringing, but we won't right, we won't right. go into that side sidebar right now. But they did have their little battles. <laughs> oh yeah, for um, sure. But you know they were yeah their friendship was amazing and yeah. Well, and, and Tolkien seems like a man who was uh, who had these friendships with yes. people he could disagree with absolutely ab- about oh, yeah. You know, Look at the letters we really read deep. in uh, Tolkien and the Great War that went back mm-hmm. and forth between yeah. him and his uh, him and Christopher and, Wiseman. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that. He kind of he kind of uh, thrived on that that sort of that sort of opposite nature. Um, yeah, yeah, he really did, uh, yeah. and always with you know respect and love. Yeah, um, I think. So, I mean, I think Lewis was like that too. I mean, I, I oh yeah, I, if, Very if much you read so. a little bit uh, about uh, Owen Barfield, uh, you know, the yeah. one who wrote Poetic Diction, um, who was one of the I guess sort of a sometime inkling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he and Lewis were like that, too. They were really good friends, but they just disagreed about so yeah. much. But <laughs> they, but, but they but just thrived on it. You know, they just yeah. they I guess they just learned so much from each other. And, you know, yeah, that would be a really interesting thing. topic to explore sometime just because I think that's lost today. You know, you look in today's, right. you know, cultural, political environment, especially. Mm-hmm. And you you really it's hard to have a dear friend with whom you disagree. That's true. Yeah, because think everything's true. so polarized today, and yeah. there's just not that same respect for, you know, um, for a differing for opinion, for disagreement, for just a different yeah. opinion. Yeah, suddenly yeah. For, it makes for a, for a that value idea. Of, I, I may disagree with you, but I respect your intelligence, and I, right. you know, I appreciate that you have the same conviction about your belief that I do. Right. Um, that that it's is a very, rare. It's a very cool days. thing, a very inspiring thing that I see with the Inklings. It is. I agree. So, you know, he had loaned it to Lewis, but he'd also loaned it, and this was important, to a, another friend of his, Elaine Griffiths. Now, she was a, mm-hmm. another philologist doing research on Middle English. They, I believe 
she had been commissioned by his publisher, or well, by his eventual publisher, who became his, his publisher, publisher at the right. time, yeah, right. uh, Alan and Unwin, to do a revision of, of um, a revised translation of Beowulf. Right. Yeah. She was visited in 1936 by Susan Dagnall, who worked for Alan and Unwin. Right. So apparently, she Griffiths recommended that Dagnall go visit Tolkien to talk to him about the Hobbit that he was working on, <laughs> so she yep. could give it a read. Yeah. She said, and Dagnall go, go, came. Go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, very well done. Yeah, she, From the uh, depths she, of her dungeon, she, <laughs> she came. Dagnall came. Um, yeah, I, yeah. A, a really amazing story to think that you know Elaine Griffiths, you know, says to the Had Susan so Dagnall, much "Hey, to do with this, go, go see this Tolkien." And I think Dagnall may have known Tolkien yeah. as well. I think there's there's speculation that she may have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tolkien was involved in in. Um, in this Beowulf translation, um, right to some degree, I think, um, yeah, yeah, in a limited no, fashion. But, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, just this idea of like, hey, you know, go pay Tolkien a visit and take a look at this Hobbit thing he's working on. I can just, I can just wow. hear it now. It's in, um, <laughs> it's in uh, um, the Elven King's voice as he says, "There is a man you must see. <laughs> he, is, he lives in the north. He's only eight years old now. He is writing a book for eight-year-olds." They call him Tollers. What his real name is, you must find <laughs> out for find yourself. Find out for yourself. <laughs> Sorry, there's we oh, we, we did of course re, you know record our our episode on the Hobbit films not too long ago, and that yes, we did. terrible line is, is rattling around in my brain. It I can't is get still it out. fresh in your mind, apparently. Yeah, fresh like the truck of fertilizer outside. <laughs> yeah, I haven't shaken that one off yet. <laughs> I just oh, I keep man. showering, I keep showering, and it still sticks. I just can't. Anyway. Why does it um, hurt so much? Why does it hurt so much? <laughs> Anywho. Oh, Sean, so, thank you so much. I'm going to have nightmares tonight. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's what I do. It's what I do, my friend. Um, so, so yeah. So, Susan Dagnall, Alan and Unwin employee, um, mm-hmm. Got a hold of the manuscript from Tolkien and apparently loved it. Yeah. Um, she she encouraged Tolkien to finish it, and and she said, you know, send it to Alan and Unwin. I think this is you know something we can something we would be interested in publishing. We might be able to work with this. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so he did. Um, yeah, he did. Obviously, um, he sent a, a typescript to Alan and Unwin on October third, nineteen thirty-six, and, and that's uh, the typescript. That Sir Stanley Unwin handed to his son. We've heard all yes. of this story, right? Yes, this is a great story. So Rainer, ten years old. I love this. I cannot wait to read this. Um, did a book report, if I remember correctly. He was paid. Now I don't was it like much. a shilling per a shilling? Per I think it was a shilling per something? review. Yeah. 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 Uh, so young Rainer said, <laughs> and I'm going to call out the 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 errors too because they don't all show up in. Pre- oh, in please do. Yeah, because uh, really, you, you kind of need to see it to appreciate it. Yeah, the, they're the, the they're typical ten year old, old misspellings. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Bilbo Baggins was a hobbit who lived in his hobbit hole and never went for adventures. At last, Gandalf the wizard and his dwarves persuaded him to go and persuaded his spelled P-E-R-S-W-A-T-E-D. <laughs> I love that. Uh, like wading out into the water. Um, he had a very ex- exiting time. <laughs> he meant exciting, <laughs> but he spelled it exiting. Exiting. A very exiting time fighting goblins and wargs. At last, they got to the Lonely Mountain, the Lonely Mountain, actually, is how he spelled that. <laughs> L-O-N-L-E-Y, um, right? L-O-N-L-E-Y. Smog the dragon who... Guards it. G a w r e d s. I want to pronounce that Gaurids, but Gaurid. Gaurids. 
Yeah. So Smaug, the dragon who gowreds it, is killed. And after a terrific battle with the goblins, he returned home rich. <laughs> Exclamation point. Apparently that's point. very important to young Rainer Unwin, uh, who was only getting a shilling for this report. <laughs> Cheap dad. <Right. laughs> Thanks, rich dad. dad, poor son. <laughs> yeah. uh, this book, with the help of maps, does not need any illustrations. It is good and should appeal to all children between the ages of five and nine, says the 10-year-old. Says the 10-year-old, which I love. <laughs> is that the most condescending <laughs> a, It's a, that little backhanded compliment. It really is. It's awesome. It's like, well, I'm too old for this childish yeah, tripe, this, but right. my nine-year-old friends right. would love it. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's brilliant. It's oh, absolutely so brilliant. so well done. And... And one one thing I love about that is you know you, you pointed out the misspellings, um, brilliant. persuaded and guards, um, guards. The kid spelled wizard and goblin and warg perfectly. No, and even Smaug, <laughs> and even Smaug, uh, and I love that. That's it you is know hilarious. It's the kind of, it's the stuff that you would think a ten year old would pick up on. You yeah, know? It's, it's great, it's brilliant stuff. Absolutely yep. hilarious. Yeah, oh, and man. and that was that. I mean, the, yeah. you know, the rest yeah, as the they rest say, as they was, say. Was history. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. They they Alan and Unwin accepted the book, and mm-hmm. uh, they ended up, I think, signing the contracts in December 1936. That's right. That's absolutely right. Now, Tonkin had a lot to say about the final product. Um, you know, I, I I'm not sure how much say authors have these days, but um, you know, he got to write his own marketing blurb for the dust jacket, mm-hmm. uh, supply his own cover art. And several of his illustrations were included in the book as well. Um, I would he, say, despite Rayner's uh, yes. suggestion that it doesn't need any illustrations except for maps, doesn't need any illustrations. Yeah. Oh well, but I yeah, guess Alan Lee's out of a job. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But yeah, they um, let they let Tolkien supply his own, which was pretty cool. I think which is were, amazing um, too. Yeah, I mean, some, his artwork. I, I do. We, if we don't have a link up, we should put a link to. Um, not only the art of the Lord of the Rings, but the art of the Hobbit. Now, I know we gave away a copy of the art of the Lord of the Rings, so that's, I'm sure, on our library. But we'll have to make sure that the art of the Hobbit is in there, too, because it's spectacular. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, good stuff. So, But, of course, you know, he, <laughs> he had a chance to proof the, 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 the final copy. Uh, and he made some <laughs> changes to the story in classic Tolkien fashion. I believe his oh, quote giddy. was something like, there were considerable confusions of narrative and geography, and he had to rectify narrative errors that escaped my previous care. Yeah, yeah, very Tolkien. And and I think one thing I, I remember reading about that is that he was he was he would replace huge sections oh, of text, chunks. Yeah. but but he did his best to make sure that what he replaced it with was yeah. the same size, right? Oh yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. And you know he was he was being considerate of uh, of the typesetters. Well, and because he also was concerned, you know, they knew, you know, there was a cost involved in mm, if, they, right. if, if the book became significantly longer. Right. Um, I mean, that ended so up being, brilliant. Course, I mean, yeah. such attention to detail. Oh, you know? very, very. Like you said the last time when we were talking about uh, the films, how when he modified Chapter 5, he did it in a very economical way. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't make, he would take one line and change a single word and it would just absolutely changed the entire meaning of that paragraph. Right. You know, yeah. and, and that's the kind of thing that he would do. But here's a master at that. Yeah. Bigger stuff. Yeah, he truly, truly is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but so yeah. it ended up, took another, you know, nine months for it to get uh, set to go to print and was published, as we all know, three days ago and 80 years <laughs> on September 21st, 1937. A, a date that's, I think, burned into the, the brains yeah. of all Tolkien fans. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Initial print run was 1,500 copies, I believe. Yeah, a little pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it sold so well that uh, yeah. the second printing was actually needed before Christmas. Yeah, so just a couple months later. They sold those later. in, you know, under three months. Two, three months, yeah. And, I mean, um, what, those, the first... You're, oh. Okay, you're the book collector here. The first edition, yeah. first print. I mean, those things oh, go goodness. for I'm not going to be a collector of those. Money, right? Yeah, they're very serious <laughs> money. Um, there was a Sotheby's auction a couple of years ago uh, where a first impression. Now, the reason I want to I be careful to use terms correctly. Okay. First edition, there were, I don't know how many impressions there were of that, but that's, those are print runs. So then the, the, each print run is an impression, not an edition. So right. that means because they didn't change the text. So impress. So is um, and I'm well, sorry, I'm not a book collector at all. It, errors. Is Go impression ahead, the same as printing? So when you say first edition, yeah. first yeah, printing, yeah, it's the first printing, okay. right? It's, okay, it's the first because the type is impressed into the paper, right? It's right. an impression. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, first impression. I am not a book collector at all. So I'm only marginally a book collector. I'm a Tolkien book collector. Uh, I don't have a lot of I, know, I don't collect anybody else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a collection, but you know, it's like I'm not you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. no, I don't and I, I I would love you know over time to collect you know a first edition, first impression of of you know each of the titles, but obviously I'm never going to be able to do that for The Hobbit or even realistically for The Lord of the Rings. The, the cost is uh, just outrageous. But mm. to give you an idea of that, this first impression copy, um, you know, back in, well, two years ago for that Sotheby's auction, sold for 137,000 pounds, which wow. at the time was a little over $200,000. Now, wow. in all fairness, that copy was signed and personally inscribed with a poem in Old English. Okay. All right. <laughs> so well, that that's makes sense. really what the, the buyer was buying. A run-of-the-mill unsigned copy, a run-of-the-mill, one of the 1,500 first impressions, <laughs> right. um, had sold a year before that at a different auction for 24000 So that's probably more oh, You know, only 24000 You know, only you the know. price of your car. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or for yeah. a year of college. <laughs> That that is um, that is awesome. My hat yeah. is off to oh, the, yeah. the serious Tolkien collectors. I I I respect what the collectors do. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be. I, I, I got kids. I got kids to send to college, so I guess I'll just stick with my first edition facsimile. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I'm glad they did that first edition facsimile because, you know, it gives us a, a chance to actually see that text in its context mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and read it the way people would have read it 80 years ago. Yeah, so fun to read it like that. It really is. Yeah, and I know there are some issues with some of those, but uh, I managed to get one of the good ones. So I'm, yeah, my I understanding I think is the um, the Harper Collins, the UK prints were all fine, but a number of the uh, Haunton Mifflin US prints had some issues. Um, though I don't recall now what the issues were. I I, I want mean, to say it was a, something with the maps. Wasn't, yes, wasn't there the an map issue was with in the, with the maps down. being printed map, upside down. Yeah, it was inserted yeah, upside down. And maybe down. some of them were uh, maybe some of them were switched. The the map that's supposed to go in the front was actually in yeah. the back. That sounds right. Um, I think I recall somebody telling us but, that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but, um, it's unfortunate. I I have had another. I have a really nice. What I thought was a really nice, beautiful, um, you know, single volume edition with the Alan Lee illustrations. Gorgeous book, uh, and then it turns out that at one point you start reading and it's repeating itself. There's an entire extra sleeve of papers in there. Oh no! Uh, so it adds like sixty pages. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it's like wait a minute. That's the same picture I just saw. I read this already. I read this. Wait a minute. Yeah, really frustrating. Man. Um, so, but, but uh, you know, yeah. it's so, it is yeah. what it is. 
<laughs> no, but it's, it's. I'm glad it's out there. I love the fact that the first edition facsimile is out there. And, oh, um, so do I. Uh, again, I'm happy that I got one. Of, I, I guess because I got one of the UK editions, I got lucky. Yeah, I did too. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's such a cool thing to have, and it you can pretend <laughs> that it's mm-hmm. one of the first edition. Um, you know, the yep, actual yep. first edition, and you and you get to see all the stuff that you know was in there before he made the changes to bring it up yeah. to date with Lord of the Rings, which we'll talk about in a minute. Absolutely, but, and um, I do believe that the edition that we have for the giveaway that we'll be talking about later mm-hmm. is a UK edition, so it should be error-free. That's what I thought. Very so, good. Very good. Um, yeah, well, let's move well, on from from the publication to the reception. How was this received by yeah. the critics? How did Rotten Tomatoes, you know, rate it? <laughs> the, the, the aggregator. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, that that was really interesting to me. And I, I, you get a lot of this in, uh, in Douglas Anderson's Annotated Hobbit. He's got mm-hmm. a lot of this in the introduction. That's true. Um, a lot of this does come from there. Yeah, and and I, I'm actually quite surprised reading it because you know we we think of all the criticism that Tolkien has gotten from you know I'm gonna make air quotes here you know so-called serious literary critics right um, and um, you know how, how how much he's he's really been attacked um, by you know the people who define literary taste um, yeah. but it really sounds like the response was fairly positive when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, the most part, yeah. some of that comes from uh, he had some friends write some reviews for him. That always um, helps. <laughs> hey, fact, if I the, write a book, Sean, would you do me a favor and write a review? You know I would, Alan. I would <laughs> gladly do it. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, the first two published reviews um, were done by C.S. Lewis, conveniently. One um, of them he, anonymously, right? I mean, I don't think I his believe name so. was associated yeah. with one of them. I believe so, Yeah. And he did he did one in the Times Literary Supplement, and then he did one in the Times, the you know the actual parent publication. Right. Um, and uh, so I actually have some quotes from some of those here in the Times Literary Supplement. He said that the Hobbit was one of a very small class of books which have nothing in common save that each admits us to a world of its own, a world that seems to have been going on before we stumbled into it, but which once found by the right reader becomes indispensable to him. It's pla- it's places with Alice, Flatland, Fantasties, Wind in the Willows. Hmm. Um, I love that. It, it kind of reminds me of the quote, you know, he, he said to his friend, uh, you know, in that in that letter that we talked about a minute ago right. um, about, you know, this world that you kind of you kind of walk into. Um, and I love the, the comparison to, you know, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, um, mm-hmm. the Wind in the Willows, which is a personal favorite of mine. And I believe right. it was also one that Tolkien loved as well. Um so I love I love what he's done with that. Um, there was uh, let's see. I think he went on to say this um, was in the second. I think the, the yeah I, this is I in think, the other review. I think the Times. In, well, I think in the the in the Times. No, you're right. This got, is also you've got the in quote that. from the yep. Times. But yeah, I've got you're this right. other paragraph from the the literary supplement that I wanted to read. He going back to Alice in Wonderland. He says Alice is read gravely by children and with laughter by grown-ups. The Hobbit, on the other hand, will be funniest to its youngest readers. And only years later, at a tenth or twentieth reading, will they begin to realize what deft scholarship and profound reflection have gone Mm. to make everything in it so ripe, so friendly, and in its own way so true. Prediction is dangerous, but The Hobbit may well prove a classic. It may well. This young Tolkien guy, he has something going for him. He's got something going for him. You know what? Um, He's absolutely right about what he says. I I love that comparison, you know, because you're right. Alice is a little scary for kids and grownups are like, Mm -hmm. this is nonsense. So it's laughter. But The Hobbit's flipped because he writes it with such care Mm -hmm. to not scare kids. Yeah. Well, and and you – 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he, he was deliberate, very deliberate oh, very about that. Deliberate. And, you know, very deliberate. I think Corey Olson did a really good analysis of that in his book. He about, did. It was really eye-opening, I thought. Yeah, um, yeah. In talking about that, like I'm thinking of the trolls, you know? Yeah. That should flat out be terrifying. Right. Flat but, out terrifying. These guys are talking about but, eating you. and But, but as a but kid, with the you're way skipping they talk, over that. Yeah. yeah. The way they talk and then referring to their, their mode of speech as not drawing room fashion at all, you know? Not at all. I love that. <laughs> not at all at all. Um, yeah, he, he, he really brings it down to that, that sillier level. Yeah. And I think he, he makes it, he makes it um, more accessible for kids and not traumatizing for kids. But he doesn't, he doesn't sanitize it. You don't no, feel like he's sanitizing it. there is a difference. It. He doesn't, yeah, yeah. Man, that is it. It's so important, and I can't wait till we get to some examples of that. I mean, obviously, the trolls is probably one of the biggest, most clear examples. But even at the beginning, even the conversation he has with the dwarves, uh, he does a really good job of kind of hiding the risk that Bilbo's looking at. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Um, yeah. And yes, The Hobbit may well prove a classic. May well prove that. a classic, yes. Understand Here we are talking about it 80 years 80 later. 80 years later. How many other books that are around for 80 mm-hmm. years do we, you know, talk about? Right. Um, now, Lewis also wrote, and this is the, the one you're mentioning. I have the, the, this quote from The Times itself. So this is right. the, the parent publication. And this was published like a year, a, a week later. I'm sorry. A week later in October of 1937. The truth is that in this book, a number of good things never before united have come together a fund of humor, an understanding of children, and a happy fusion of the scholar's wit with the poet's grasp of mythology. On the edge of a valley, one of Professor Tolkien's characters can pause and say, it smells like elves. <laughs> Which, you know how much I love that one. Yeah, I know. You wrote a pondering on that. <laughs> it may be years before we produce another author with such a nose for an elf. <laughs> the professor has the air of inventing nothing. He has studied trolls and dragons at first hand and describes them with that fidelity which is worth oceans of glib originality. <laughs> I love that, how he dismisses I, that the, at the end. The, yes. I love that, the air of inventing nothing. Yeah, you know, it's he's this just idea discovering this, these things. He's discovering, he's discovering this place, and he's just describing he's this world it. that he's found. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, Man. It's incredible stuff. Lewis um, really had insight there, didn't he? Yeah, he really did. And I, I mean, mean, it wasn't just like he was blowing smoke and giving his friend a five-star no, review. He was no, writing I mean, a he's, real legitimate review. It really was. And he was not the only person who said, you know, The Hobbit would become a classic. There was at least one other reviewer that, you know, mm-hmm. that talked about that. Um, I mean, he wasn't the only person to, to, you know, do things like make the connection to oh, no. Alice, you know. Um, of course, to be fair, um, the, the publishers did mention Alice on the dust jacket blurb. Well, there is that. They? Yeah, they <laughs> so, did. <laughs> so I guess there's that. But but I think a lot of reviewers sort of latched onto it. Um, yeah. But uh, but no, I think you're right. I think Lewis really he was giving a, a, a really honest review. I mean, he really he, he really felt this way. And I think having read the book, I think we can we understand where he was coming from with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wasn't entirely positive reception, though, was it? No, um, no. <laughs> I've actually got one uh, one negative review here. Uh, this was by an Eleanor Graham mm-hmm. in uh, in a publication called Junior Bookshelf, um, where she said. The Hobbit is a strange book. It has in it the makings of a very good story, or perhaps a book of short stories for children, but it is marred, in my opinion, by some reflection of the author's attitude towards the world. A sort of Aunt Sally spirit replaced the benevolence, which is notable in the most loved books for children. Instead of natural obstacles in the path of achievement, the journey of The Hobbit and his companions is interrupted by obstructions which somehow give the effect of deliberately intentional setbacks and not of natural Hmm. developments. 
Um, which is an interesting, I mean, oh, she did go on to say those people who like it will like it very much indeed. Oh my goodness. Which I'm well, not sure is meant as a compliment. Um, no, I don't think it is, but <laughs> it, it, it's certainly true. It's, mean, it's, yeah, but it's, it's almost a bit dismissive. Like, well, well those people who yeah, actually yeah. get into this sort of thing, oh, they're going to love it. But, um, and they'll go see so, the movie 50 times. You know, I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. I did um, the math. She had to watch this movie every day and twice and on twice Sunday. Twice on Sundays. <laughs> go listen to um, go the listen Shippy to lecture Tom if Shippy, you haven't listened please, to it do it yet. now. Episode 50 and 51. It's in our yeah, show notes. Go listen good to stuff. it. You know, I, a quick sidebar on this. I had to, when, when I read this quote, I'm like, what in the world is an Aunt Sally spirit? Now, I, I happen to remember reading The Adventures of Huck Finn, Huckleberry Finn, when I was young. And in that story, there's a, a minor character, not that minor, but somewhat minor, Aunt Sally, who's a, a farmer's wife that who intends to adopt and civilize Huck. But okay. I don't think that's what this means. Um, Probably not, no. Pardon our American lack of knowledge, but apparently there exists a traditional fairground and pub game in England called Aunt Sally, where players throw sticks at the head of an old woman. Okay, a model of an old woman. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, I'll volunteer. <laughs> Fine. We need an old woman for our Aunt Sally game. Ow! <laughs> Ow! Stop that! I feel fine. <laughs> so apparently these days, and, and yes, it is still played. It's just a ball and a stick, but that's progress for you. Um, so apparently what this critic was saying was that, that Tolkien, instead of being... We don't want being, to be barbarians here. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to be... You know. <laughs> Sorry, please well, continue. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking how, how much criticism people would get if right. they were at a pub throwing sticks at the head of a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not very 21st century that, that you know let's just put a ball on a stick um so what this critic was saying in essence was that tolkien instead of being benevolent like other children's authors with with the character was throwing sticks at bilbo that the troubles he encountered hmm. weren't natural developments but troubles thrown at him like the the sticks at the head of aunt sally so How? she's kind of speaking to a kind of cruelty like as uh, tolkien yeah, is kind of cruelly of, throwing things in Right. Or, I mean, that's kind of randomly. I think her criticism is that it feels forced, mm. uh, that they weren't natural obstacles in the path of achievement. They were like, okay. whoa, hey, there's this stick flying towards me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because um, I'm, I'm latching onto this word benevolence. You know, she's saying, yeah, this spirit replaces the benevolence. Yeah, and that makes me maybe feel a little like, bit. You know, of that. Yeah, you're right. Benevolence she's is implying there's to a malevolence there. But yeah, you're right because she does talk about replacing the benevolence with this Aunt Sally spirit, and the Aunt Sally spirit is this stick throwing spirit. That's apparently. very interesting. So how's that for some kind of word nerdery? I, I, I usually I, let you find those things. That's out, great. No, I'm I'm glad you found that. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna go ahead. You and told me you actually a, you actually found. Uh, was yes, there a video of this? Yes, there's a video. I found <laughs> a, a video on YouTube of a couple of old guys in a pub playing some sort of singles championship of Aunt Sally. So that's we're awesome. gonna put that link in our show notes to to give you a, you know some laughs. <laughs> I think we have to. Yeah. Um, good stuff. Yeah. Well, um, so I guess that's, you know, that was a good overview of some of the U.K. response. Um, we'll spend a, maybe just a little time on some of the U.S. responses because, mm -hmm. you know, we're Americans. I think we're interested we in how it was received over here. Um, the Hobbit actually came out a little later in the U.S. It came out in 1938. Um, coincidentally, just weeks after the release of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, or mm -hmm. Dwarves, um, <laughs> yeah. but they spelled it Dwarfs. Yeah, um, Walt's, and I, Walt's terrible version of spelling Dwarves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I found it very interesting that a couple of the American reviewers picked up on 
um, you know, the, the timing of this. Um, mm-hmm. There is one one reviewer, there was a May Lamberton Becker who wrote in the New York Herald Tribune that dwarfs have come in have uh, come this year into fashion in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and perhaps mm-hmm. these Tolkien's dwarves will benefit from the Disney boom. Ooh, um, I don't think Tolkien would have liked that very much. No, I, I can't imagine that he would have. Although I, I think that was the same reviewer who um, picked up on the fact that Tolkien had more in common with, uh, with uh, is it Lord, uh, Lord Dunsany? Dunsany, yeah. Yeah, um, more so than Lewis Carroll, which I thought was neat. Okay, Lewis Carroll Tolkien... being Alice in Wonderland and right. uh, uh, Lord Dunsany being what then? Um, I will have to look that up. Um, but I know, that, um, <laughs> I know that he's an author that Tolkien actually had read. Yeah, I just can't remember what, though. That's the thing. Yeah, no, uh, I, I don't well, remember. I'll have, we'll I'll put it up. in our show notes. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think she, you know, she picked up on that at least. Um, yeah. There's, there's another great one that I, um, another reviewer, Sophia Goldsmith, who wrote in the New York Post that uh, Tolkien's dwarves put Snow White's boyfriends completely in the shade. And I kind of love that one. In the shade. Throwing some shade their way on Twitter. <laughs> Throwing some shade at the boyfriends. Yep. <laughs> that was great stuff. Um, there are two American reviewers, though, who really seem to have picked up on what he was doing, and I love these two reviews. There was, um, well, you've got one of them, but I, I really like this one. This was from a, a reviewer named Ann Eaton. She wrote that Tolkien's fantasy landscape was, quote, unmistakably a part of England and of fairyland at the same time. The background of the story is full of authentic bits of mythology and magic, and the book has the rare quality of style. It is written with a quiet humor and the logical detail in which children take delight. And boy, is it. I mean, was that? Yeah. That's just spot on. Yeah. But you've got another one from the same uh, same same, publication called Hornbook. The same publication, the Hornbook. There was another reviewer, Anne Carol Moore. She said, I love this one. She said that The Hobbit was a refreshingly adventurous and original tale of dwarfs, dwarfs again, uh, goblins, elves, dragons, trolls, etc. in the true tradition of the old sagas. I think it is a mistake to compare The Hobbit with Alice or with The Wind in the Willows. It is unlike either book. It is firmly rooted in Beowulf and authentic Saxon lore. Boy, she gets it. So somebody was paying attention. Really paying attention. I think that is super cool. It really is. I love that. That was fun. And I have uh, looked at a list of of Lord Dunsany's writings, and uh, they are just too many... Uh, yeah. To name here, there's. I so tried to do the same thing while you were reading. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will admit he's not a writer that I'm familiar with, except that no. I know that Tolkien, you know, read a lot of his stuff. Right, but. and and yeah, yeah, and certainly would have been influenced more by him than by Lewis Carroll with Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Well, okay, so we've looked at the reviews. We've looked at well, what you know, uh, composition and publication, and and the reviews, and now let's look at what happened after the reviews. You know, he didn't stop changing the story just because it was published. I mean, we oh, all. No. We all know that um, you know the biggest change, the most famous change, was was what he did after he started developing the Lord of the Rings. When he realized what the ring was and that that was going to be the tie between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, he had to make some changes to the original story to make Gollum more corrupted, more evil. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read a, a fairly lengthy quote. I may skip around a little bit um, from Skull and Hammond's Reader's Guide. In Chapter 5, as it was first published, Gollum, although willing to kill and eat Bilbo, nonetheless treats the riddle contest as sacred. And when he loses and cannot give Bilbo the present he had promised him, the magic ring that confers invisibility, he apologizes and shows the hobbit a way out of the caverns. But in The Lord of the Rings, Gollum's ring is revealed to be the One Ring, okay, which corrupts the, the bearer and would never have been easily given away as a present. And Gollum himself is shown to be exceedingly treacherous, not 
likely to be courteous or to honor the terms of a riddle game. Mm-hmm. So in the revised version of Chapter 5, uh, which came out in 1951, Gollum doesn't promise a present, and then I'm not back to the quote now, but to show Bilbo a way out should the Hobbit win their contest. And when Bilbo does win, Gollum intends to kill him with the aid mm-hmm. of the ring. Even without the ring, he attempts to do so once he realizes that the object is now in Bilbo's possession. As revised, the chapter was now in better accord with the history and nature of the One Ring as it had developed in the sequel. But rather than ignore, this is where the brilliance is, this is where it gets brilliant. Mm -hmm. Rather than ignore the original version of the chapter, Tolkien cleverly decided to embrace it as the story that Bilbo first told to Gandalf and the dwarves and that he wrote down in his memoirs. In The Lord of the Rings, it's made clear that the ring, as part of its attempt to return to its malevolent creator, established an unhealthy hold on Bilbo from the moment that he found it, causing the otherwise honest hobbit to lie to his companions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. What do you, you it know, really is. We you know, probably call this a retcon today, but well, the yeah, way Tolkien yeah. did it, was it was just a stroke of genius. Total, uh, you know, this total, total in your in-universe explanation that yeah. also shows the hold that the ring already has on Bilbo. He's already being corrupted by the ring, um, and it, it, such it, a drastic change in the printed story. Yeah, and yet he finds a way to with explain so it within the story actual, itself. Yeah, and it's he does it phenomenal. with you know, and he does it with relatively little. Yeah, you know, relatively words yeah, change. minimal change really. And I, I know I, this is something I know we're going to spend a ton of time on, on chapter yeah, when five. Yeah, we get to in the dark, yeah. That yeah, might be like four episodes. <laughs> could be. And I don't want to steal our thunder on it too much. No. But, uh, you know, definitely if you're if you're not familiar with that being one of the major changes, that that really yeah. was a big one. Um, and brilliantly done, the way he sort of explained Absolutely. it in universe. Absolutely. Um, there were a few other minor changes, right, throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There was, um, you know, like chapter three, uh, the original ver- the original edition um, – when Elrond talks about the high elves of Gondolin, he'd use the word gnomes there because that was still a word he was using. Gnomes. There we go again. There's my gnomes. I love my gnomes. You're um, a gnome connoisseur. Yeah, I'm a gnome <laughs> connoisseur. That is true. Um, you're no longer the real life Lord of the Mark. You're just the gnome I am, connoisseur. I am the gnome connoisseur and the gnome master. Um, <laughs> there's what? Uh, chapter one, there's the reference to cold chicken and tomatoes in the first cha- uh, in yeah. the first edition. Yeah. And then Tolkien changed that to pickles because he wanted to get rid of that reference to a new world vegetable. Now, I find that interesting because he left several occurrences. I want to say at least six or eight references of the word tobacco, a word which mm. another new world, a new world thing that didn't enter English until the mid 16th century out of Spanish. Why do you think he left tobacco in but changed to pickles to tomatoes? I wish I knew. I know. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, know. I, I could speculate. I mean, I actually, um, we talked about it this a little bit before we started recording. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, we did. I actually had looked at, um, there's that newly book that just came out. It's called The oh, Flora yeah. of Middle Earth. Yeah, I haven't read that um, yet. By, uh, I've got I haven't read it, but I've got a copy on my shelf. It's uh, it's by Walter Judd and Graham Judd, who I believe uh, one of them is actually a botanist and the other is uh, is an oh, illustrator. Wow. Okay. And uh, it's just all about you know the the plants of Middle Earth and their their real life um, you know real life counterparts, things they were inspired right. by. Um, I looked to see if they had an explanation because they do have you know some somewhat speculative explanations for things like coffee and things like that. Okay. Um, but uh, they didn't you know they called out the discrepancy. They called out that it was odd that he called it tobacco, but they didn't really explain it. Um, hmm. They just kind of left it there. One thing that I can imagine is, you know, maybe he was just thinking of it as a, a translation yeah. of, you know, what, of the, you know, whatever the real word was in Westron, um, similar to the way that he translated orc to goblin. And that's yeah, something that's that what he I was thinking is that orc goblin page. thing. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. could be it. I mean, it, it's 
<laughs> it's one of those things where I'm actually glad he left it in because it makes it a little more <laughs> because clear. Because it makes it a little easier to disprove the uh, all the yeah. theories of what else pipeweed might be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pipeweed, yeah. clearly nicotania, nicotinia, yeah. Or however, yeah, nicotinia, um, you know, tobacco. And, yeah. and the, the references to it in The Hobbit really help make that a little more clear. Yeah. Now, there, yeah. Were, there I, were other, you know. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. No, I, I was to... just going to say, yeah, I think I think it's easy enough to, you know, again, he, if he's writing this for children and as, as strange as it may seem for us in 2017 to think that one would want to include a reference to tobacco in a children's book. But at the time, <laughs> you know, it's a um, good point. It, was, it was a slightly different world. And I think oh, yeah, children much. were much more familiar with adults around them using tobacco. And I think he just wanted right. to use that word because it's something children recognize. Yeah, I think so. Well, and because he was such an, you know, he enjoyed pipe Such an enthusiast pipe himself. Tobacco. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he really did. One of my favorite letters is uh, he's talking about uh, how he went to some meeting in in uh, Denmark? Okay. Maybe Nether- no, Netherlands. It was Netherlands. And, um, and how they gave him um, special tobacco, you know, <laughs> like with labels like Longbottom Leaf and Old Toby oh, okay. and things like that. Well, you say enjoyed- special tobacco in the Netherlands, my mind goes somewhere <laughs> well, this else. This is but- in 1930s, you know, <laughs> or, or 40s, maybe 50s. I don't know. But it, okay. it wasn't that special. It was actual, <laughs> real, genuine tobacco. Okay. Uh, I'll find that letter, maybe uh, reference that or something in our, our show notes. But there were other changes. And, and really, if you want to dig into those changes, you can do two things. You can either look in the annotated Hobbit or you can really, for fun, you can do the comparative work yourself. Pick up that first edition facsimile uh, or, you know, win it by filling out our listener survey uh, and, you know, compare that to the, the more recent version. So you can mm-hmm. you know, do that. Yeah. Interesting footnote to this whole Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, We won't spend a ton of time on this, but uh, it's interesting to note that um, Tolkien actually started a full rewrite of The Hobbit in 1960. That's right. After Lord of the Rings. And he he was going to try and bring the story more into that epic fantasy style of Lord of the Rings. That would have been interesting. He he ended up giving it up. I think um, you know yeah. he probably just uh, the quote that I've got here from uh, from Skull and Hammond's Reader's Guide is that you know he, he perhaps recognized that for better or worse he had created the Hobbit as a children's book and a fairy tale, um, and that was you know that was really yeah. the charm of it. So it uh, I'm, I'm it would have been interesting. I, I would love to oh, see. Oh, it would have been what, intriguing, but I'm yeah. But I love the Hobbit as it is, and I I've, exactly you know, as I it, ironically as I get older, and maybe it's because you know having kids myself. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I really, I really like the nature of the Hobbit. I like it the way it is. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, so now we've talked about well, just about everything about the book itself, except mm-hmm. its legacy. So what else? What else can we say? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to tell anybody listening to this that the without, you know, the, the Hobbit is the reason that the Lord yeah. of the Rings was published later. Exactly, um, and. That, of course, is in turn the reason why the Silmarillion was published later. <laughs> yeah, um, that's everything true. else that came after that was published was was published because of the Hobbit. I mean, that's a good point. You know, if let, that had let, not succeeded, none of this, none of this else, none of the other right. works would have been written or released. Right. I mean, and you know, to be fair, you know, Tolkien had a you know successful career as a philologist, as a professor mm-hmm. of Old and Middle English, and I think. In certain circles of the world, people would have uh, circles of the world. That's I shouldn't use that phrase. But in certain circles, you know, <laughs> academic circles and things, um, you know, some people would know his name. Sure, if the Hobbit yeah. had never been published, but uh, we certainly not wouldn't be here, would we? No, no. Um, I mean, none of us, you know, would be talking about Tolkien today. And I think I found like this was I felt this was most beautifully summed up by John Ratliff. Um, 
in the acknowledgments, I don't know if you read all the acknowledgments to the history of the I Hobbit. I haven't yet, no. He's, there's this long list of acknowledgments and thank yous. Um, and the last one in the list, of, in this list of thank yous, the last one is, and to Susan Dagnall for asking. Oh, wow. And and I love that. I just, I, I honestly, I teared up a little reading that because That's, it's like, yeah. wow. Without I, yeah, her, none of this happens. None of this. Like, how how... How close could we have come to never having had these stories? I know. Because he'd certainly, uh, I don't know, would he ever have pushed to get it published? I, I don't know. I mean, I, he seemed I, to be very content reading it to his kids and, yeah. and letting his friends read it and not. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you this much. The podcast certainly wouldn't be here. No, it certainly <laughs> would not. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't know you. And nor would That's I know true. so many other friends from the Tolkien community around the That's world. True. Yeah. I mean, truth be told, my daughter probably wouldn't be named Eleanor either. <laughs> that's you know we named yeah, her after really after fun. the flower and yeah yeah, yeah it's I definitely so i mean when you think about i mean people like us that tolkien's world has been so much a part of our lives mm-hmm. um it's just the, the legacy is immeasurable i think yes yes it um, is. i mean you know i think the hobbit historically has been most people's introduction to Tolkien, certainly their introduction to his writing. You know, now that we've got um, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, which I think are, you know, a pretty good introduction to the world, at least. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's probably some people who go straight from those movies to reading Lord of the Rings or something. But certainly before that, uh, you know, people started with The Hobbit, right? I mean, I know I did. I know know? I did, too. I mean, I, I looked into this. I actually couldn't find any hard data regarding which book people read first. But you know, anecdotally, it really was traditionally the first book people would read, followed by yeah. Lord of the Rings and then the Silmarillion, basically published right. order. Um, True. Yeah. You know, when the movies came out, I, I I suspect that for a while between the time the Lord of the Rings came came out and the, the the Hobbit films came out in that in that interim, the trend may have kind of shifted to be read Lord of the Rings first because that was the movie, and so then they wanted to read the book. You'd go straight from that movie to that book. To the yeah, Lord of the Rings. I wouldn't and be surprised if that yeah. was, yeah. I suspect that a lot of people were like, yeah. wow, I just saw this amazing movie. I should go read the book. I should go read the book, yeah. You know, now that the Hobbit films have been released, maybe it's reverted back to the old tradition of reading The Hobbit first. Um, for those Could who be. bother with the books, at least. Right. <laughs> um, right. You know, I, I personally prefer a chronological read-through like we're doing, but... You know, in all fairness, we're not even doing a truly pure chronological read. <laughs> that's a, that's I mean, a very are, good point. There are people who've broken it down paragraph by paragraph, including stuff out of Unfinished Tales. And that's just a little too crazy for me right now. Yeah. No, I, I like to keep it kind of simple. At least yeah. kind of simple. Keep it within but, the, uh, the covers of a book at a time. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, with that said, Alan, you want to uh, share uh, your story about the first time you read The Hobbit? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I have to say it, it's hard to recollect a, a lot of specific details. So, you know, please bear with me. I, I remember. I know you've done some hard living. <laughs> <laughs> me and Kenny Stabler, man. You know, <laughs> sorry. Nobody that listens to this probably got that. He I, Ken Stabler, the snake, was the quarterback of the Raiders. Famous hard party <laughs> animal would go out and get just, you know, blasted on a Saturday night and then show up with a hangover on Sunday morning and throw for 300 yards and four touchdowns. <laughs> I mean, wow. You know, um, deserved to be in the Hall of Fame a lot earlier, certainly before he passed away. But I digress. Um, the <laughs> There's probably people who don't even know who the Raiders are. Because we've got a few got, Raiders fans in the audience. We've got yeah. so many international listeners that, uh, you know, the, the Oakland Raiders are a football team in America. That means they don't kick the ball. They pick it up and they run with it right. or throw it forward. 
Right, which <laughs> okay. is which is why we call it football here for some yes, strange reason. Yes, I, I know. Well, I mean, I guess the kicker kicks it, but that's about it. But yeah, we, anyway. we, estab- we established earlier when we weren't recording that I'm a soccer fan. So yes, I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy soccer as well. The beautiful game is a indeed a beautiful yes. game. Yeah. So um, what I do remember is that that though I didn't see it, the Rankin and Bass animated version came out uh, in November of '77. And the book for right. that, you know, these days, if a movie comes out, the book is out at the same time. Well, so I was yeah. thinking that it was probably Christmas matching cover and, art and everything right. like that. Yeah, yeah. That didn't happen back then. That actually didn't come out until the fall of the next year. Uh, and I know that actually because of the details on the page. I still have my first copy of The Hobbit, and it's the Rankin and Bass animated book. It's the book with stills from the film. Um, okay. Absolutely fabulous, you know, images uh, really for, for a 10-year-old at that time or an 11-year-old at that time. It was, uh, no, that would have been 10. I was 10. So, yeah, I did get a copy of the book for Christmas in 1978, complete with all the stills. So we're talking about something that happened, you know, nearly 40 years ago. <laughs> um, you know, I was I was negative seven been, years. I was negative seven years time. old. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was, <laughs> somehow I was actually less than zero. I'd like to think because I don't want to realize how old that makes me now. Um, no, you're young at heart. There you go. Uh, what I remember, though, was being just totally fascinated with how incredibly real the world felt. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that, that sticks with me more than anything else. I wanted to, to know more about it, to know more about everything, to know more about, you know, the Gondolin and, mm-hmm. and the, you know, where did these swords come from and... Yeah. Why are there trolls and who are these elves and how did a dragon get here and where are the other dragons? And right. I, there's so much I wanted to know. And I didn't even know about the Lord of the Rings. This was I, I was an only child. I didn't have a lot of, you know, friends, uh, peers. A lot of my friends were older. Um, and so, you know, like it's never came up that I was reading this kid's book. Right. Because that's sure. how, how I viewed it, especially with the animated pictures. But about four years later, I'd probably read it about a half dozen times. And then four years later, as a freshman in high school in <clears throat> 1982, um, <laughs> uh, a friend told me about The Lord of the Rings. After We're all doing I'd the math ta- right now. I know. Shush. A friend told me about The Lord of the Rings. And the rest, as they say, is history. So uh, nice. what about what about you, Sean? Nice. That's a good story. I, yeah, except for well, the 1982 part. Well, you know. Brush over that part. I was a um, child genius. I was four years old. Right. Of course. <laughs> you were in high school at four years old. Um, well, my plan is to to write this, write my story in A Prancing Pony Pondering, um, which if I did it oh, when good. I well, said I we'll would. Oh, we'll move on. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> if I did it when I said I would, it should have come out about a week ago. Oh, However, the vagaries um, of time travel. Yes, I know. I know. The miracles of recording. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, The Hobbit was, you know, the first thing I ever read by Tolkien. Sure, was, uh, sure. It was 1991. Um, I was a teenager. I was uh, 15, I think. Um, oh my and goodness! I, I had not. I didn't know anything about The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth. I, I'm sure I had seen covers, you know, sure. but didn't know anything about the story. Um, what made me want to start reading it was actually I read uh, just offhand somewhere. I actually read somewhere the story of how Tolkien started writing it. That that oh, story no. I was just saying a moment, yeah, you know, yeah. sharing a moment ago from Carpenter. Um, and that's what really got me interested in it. Um, it. I was just, I think I was just kind of blown away by the fact that a college professor got bored grading papers one day and then just started writing a novel <laughs> on an, on an is, exam. I mean, that is pretty cool. That was the coolest thing I'd ever heard of, um, which probably <laughs> says quite a bit of, uh, you know, for the 
If I look I at your schoolwork at that point, am I going to find uh, you know the, the the germs of a novel on the back of your English assignment? Uh, yes, but <laughs> it's not one that is ever going to see the light of day because it no. should not see the light of day. Some things are better left yes. unsaid. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, I read oh. this story. I thought, oh, that's awesome. I've got to read this book. So I went out and bought a four-volume paperback box set of The Hobbit oh, yeah. and Lord of the Rings. Yep. Um, read them really fast. And I'm actually uh, generally a fairly slow reader. And I know I read these mm. books really fast, you know, in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. Sure. Um, and, wow, uh, all and four I wanted, of them. Yeah, all four That's of them. That's pretty amazing. Weeks. Yeah. And it was, it was a summer, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had more time. But uh, I read them really fast and I wanted more. I, I yes. went straight out and I picked up the Silmarillion. Um, and you were how old when you picked up the Silmarillion? In 15. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say I understood it, but, you know, I. <laughs> I picked up on parts of it, and um, yeah, I, that's and, pretty cool. Yeah, it was just it just always it grabbed me, and you know, kind of like what you're saying about this world that you just wanted to know more about. Yeah. The world felt so real. Was that depth? Um, that was it, and I think honestly, it was as I loved The Hobbit, I loved The Lord of the Rings. I think it was really when I read The Lord of the Rings appendices that I just realized, like, wow, yeah, that's so mind much blown there. right there. Yeah, so I guess I'm kind of you know. A little off topic because really I have to I have to admit I mean the Hobbit pulled me into the world yeah. but it was admittedly Lord of the Rings that kept me there you know yeah yeah same um, here and I and I have to say I mean I I reread Lord of the Rings every year since like 1991 mm-hmm. um, but I didn't always read the Hobbit I I will say that um, where I really uh, rediscovered or let me borrow Tolkien's word recovered Ooh, my recovery, love for the yes. Hobbit um, was uh, just a few years ago when my son was born. Yeah. Um, so my son is four now. Um, he was a really cranky newborn. And um, the only <laughs> thing that would calm him down at night and that would actually yeah. get him to sleep was hearing yeah. me or my wife's voice. And, um, you know, we would sing, we would read baby books or whatever. And one night he was three months old and I had been probably been singing for hours. Um, I, I I was tired of singing David Bowie songs because he loved David Bowie when he was a baby. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's hilarious. I think I'm, and, I would pay to hear audio of you singing David Bowie to your son, only because then I could humiliate you on Facebook. Again, some things better left uncovered. Better left uncovered. And but some I, things, which were... <laughs> I can just hear Galadriel now. Uh, which should not have been, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I just got tired of reading whatever baby books we were reading, singing whatever, and I was sure. just—I just said, "I'm going to read The Hobbit to him." And so I just picked up Better The Hobbit more and just peace, started, right? I mean, you know, it's, right. <laughs> so I just started reading that aloud to him, and that's um, awesome. And I just—that—that's really what reawakened my wonder. I, I would say that really kind of allowed me to approach Middle Earth in a new way. Just seeing yeah. it, you know, seeing it as a father. Um, was I, I kind agree. of the first new perspective in years, and yeah. and that all started with the Hobbit. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Ever since then, I've just I've had this newfound love for the Hobbit, and that's uh, cool. I'm excited. I, I'm really excited about. I am too, because it. like you, the Lord of the Rings is what really draws me and keeps me. And then, like you, I read the Lord of the Rings every year. I mean, you know, for goodness, probably from ninety from eighty two when I was a freshman in high school, probably all the way until. I don't know, 97, 98. Uh, by that point, you know, I'd been, my wife and I had been married maybe five, six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, you know, real life demands probably made it more like once every two years. Yeah. We read it out loud right before the movies came out, uh, which was fantastic. Oh, that's cool. uh, because I was not going to let her watch the movies without reading the books first. Uh, and I still stand by that decision. 
But yeah, yeah. It, you know, The Hobbit, I kind of, I'm not going to say I lost the love for it, but it was replaced with this kind of greater love for The Lord of the Rings and then for The yeah. Silmarillion and all the depth yeah. that Middle Earth offers. But The Hobbit is really an amazing story on its own. And I am really looking forward to exploring that and to rediscovering that, not just for ourselves, but for our listeners, many of whom are also, you know, very, you know, quote unquote, hardcore uh, and, and have kind of graduated maybe, and don't maybe forgotten the Hobbit the, as much. Yeah. Forgotten yeah. the simple pleasures of the Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of that, how are we going to, to cover that here? How are we going to give it the prancing pony podcast treatment? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't prepare, prepare my effects today. Um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. How, what are we well, going to do? Well, so yeah, I think uh, a little explanation of what we're talking about here. So those of you who have read Corey Olson's book, um, exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, um, or who at least listened to our last episode in which we interviewed him, uh, know that he kind of breaks out these three stages of The Hobbit's history. Mm-hmm. He describes it as the solo stage, which is basically, you know, the the original version, the original right. edition before Lord of the Rings came out, the revision stage, while it was being revised to add all this material for Lord of the Rings, and then the assimilation stage, which is where it's in now, you know, basically fully absorbed into the mythology. Yeah, um, as opposed and, to being fully absorbed into the Borg collective. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. You will be um, assimilated. What is it, uh, resistance Your is cultural, futile? yeah, resistance is futile. Yeah. Your biological <laughs> and cultural distinctiveness <laughs> anyway. will be absorbed into the later. Yeah, I, I digress. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've we thought about this quite a bit, and yeah. we have decided, although I, I think um, – Corey Olson actually makes a, a very good case for the solo stage. A, he does. A wonderful case for the solo stage. But we've actually decided that we're going to try and live <laughs> – we're going to try and have it both ways, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. We're, we're, we're going to spend as much time on both the solo stage and the assimilation stage as possible mm-hmm. because it is interesting to see the work from both sides. But yeah. I think just you know to kind of level set for everybody, I think we're going to be spending more time – in the assimilation, yeah. <laughs> assimilation stage. Um, I don't know why I feel like I can't say that word tonight. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that there are some good reasons for that. Um, there are. Even though Corey Olson makes a good case for focusing on the solo stage, and I think he does the right thing by doing so in his he book. He does. Frankly, he does such a good job of it in his book that I don't really know what we could add to that. Yeah, just that's, that's kind of where I'm book, at. You know? I mean, I, I was so persuaded by Olson's discussion on this topic before we yeah. talked about how we were going to handle this that I really thought we'd do what he did, and, and for the reasons he gives. But, yeah, he's done it so well, we just end up looking like copycats. And yeah. I, I'm not, I, that's not where I want to go. But there's, you know, one other pretty good reason. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the I guess the obvious reason is, you know, we started this podcast with The Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've spent, you know, 40-plus uh, episodes on it. <laughs> um, it would be silly, I think, for us to suddenly pretend like, you yeah. know, we don't have all that earlier history of Middle-earth already and i and i think that you know that was kind of something we set out in set out with uh the intention of from the beginning really wasn't it because we're looking at the legendarium as a whole i mean we we started with the silmarillion for a reason and that reason is because we wanted to provide the backstory the depth of backstory Mm -hmm. that was going to really enhance people's enjoyment of the hobbit and lord of the rings so kind of because of that we really do have to go with the assimilation stage yeah, I think so. So um, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time. We'll bring up the solo stage at times. Oh, yeah. I would say uh, Corey Olson's book, fantastic review of the of the solo stage. Yes, Go read it. Definitely. It's 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 eye opening. It really um, is. 
But we are going to spend a lot of time on the assimilation stage. And we are going to proceed with caution because, yeah. um, you know, as Professor Olson says, and, and we mentioned this in our in our Hobbit movie episode, you know, we don't want to lose sight of the ideas that this story, that the Hobbit is interested in. That's you know, right. We don't, we don't always want to be thinking of Frodo and Mount Doom. But, right. you know, but we want to also have that context. Exactly. And we'll definitely point out where, you know, you're going to be better off as listeners kind of setting aside the legendarium picture in order to better enjoy the narrower focus of the story that Tolkien wrote here. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we probably will spend some time doing a little compare and contrast, you know, yeah, um, just to kind of see what different patterns and what different readings and interpretations emerge by, you know, especially something like chapter five, where it's oh, so yeah. important. Yeah, you know, it's going to be huge there. What what picture of Gollum emerges from looking at the first edition text versus the later text? Mm-hmm. You know, what what might we have thought of Gollum? If that was all we knew was the right. first edition. As like what if this podcast was happening in 1938? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that would that would be amazing for starters because – Well, it would – yeah. You know. It would be really I think, amazing I don't if think smartphones were fast enough in 1938 to download <laughs> no. uh, episodes this long. <laughs> <laughs> I get to see it now. It's coming across the telegraph line. That would take – Yeah, exactly. How long would that take? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's how we're planning mm-hmm. to cover it and, yeah. um, you know, uh, follow along with us. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. And, um, I would say, uh, in, in the words of Tolkien, now you know enough to go on with, uh, <laughs> but for more, I think you'll have to wait until next time. Indeed. Well, that was a great discussion, Sean. Folks, be sure to join us again in two weeks when we'll finally meet the first hobbit here at the Prancing Pony. Um, mm-hmm. Now, before we wrap up with a question from Barnum's Bag, if we've earned your support here at the Prancing Pony podcast, you're going to want to take a look at our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash prancingponypod. We've set up some really cool goals, like a move to weekly episodes, which we're really close to, or at least as, mm-hmm. as of this recording, uh, yeah. and some really fun rewards, too. Yes, definitely. And we do want to take a moment to thank those of you who've already joined the the fellowship of the podcast Mm -hmm. by supporting us on Patreon. And we want to give a very special shout out to Maya from Michigan, who is our patron at the Kierdan's contribution tier. Um, And if you would like a personalized shout out on our episodes, you know where to go. Yep. And thank you, Maya. And for the rest of you, while your patronage is truly appreciated, we want to make something clear. We don't want you to feel obligated. This isn't a PBS drive, okay? Right, absolutely not. If you can afford it, and if you think we've earned it, only then do we want you to consider signing up. Otherwise, just keep enjoying the podcast, because we're going to keep enjoying making it. That's right. Yep. And we will continue doing so. Absolutely. Um, And, uh, and, you know, we could also use a little help with uh, with something that, Mm -hmm. you know, that will not cost you anything. Uh, we've got right. a survey from our podcast host that we could use some help with. Uh, it's a really short survey, um, 30 seconds if you take your time. Uh, if you take your time. Yeah, seriously. Um, it's and and it's, it's basically helping us understand our audience a bit better. Um, mm-hmm. I, I promise we will stop mentioning this once we've <laughs> yes, gotten we to the, the magic number of 250 completions that we need. Yeah. Um, but uh, but until then, um, we are going to keep reminding folks of it. Um, so yeah. please visit survey.libsyn, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com slash The Prancing Pony Podcast and help us out. We really appreciate it. We do. And, and just a reminder that the demographic data is just collected in aggregate. Uh, we don't even see that. That goes straight to the podcast host so they know whether you're a young audience or an old audience, a male audience, a female audience, et cetera. Right. 
Sean and I are the only ones who get your email addresses. Uh, and once we get 250 completed surveys, we're going to do a drawing from all those email addresses. We're going to do two giveaways, a copy of the new Baird and Luthien book and a first edition facsimile edition of The Hobbit. Uh, we, we do want to express, though, that that needs to be U.S. residents only just because of the cost of shipping. Yep. Uh, check out our show notes for a link if you missed it. Uh, and Sean, do we have any questions in Bartleman's bag this time around? We certainly do. Uh, we got a question not long ago from one of our patrons, uh, Frederick in Sweden. Um, Frederick was uh, thinking about one of our episodes a long, long time ago. Um, this was uh, episode 19, I believe, back when we talked about the origin of the sun and moon. Um, we stuck mostly to the story in the Silmarillion uh, in that discussion, but we also alluded briefly to um, the version of the story in History of Middle-Earth, which Tolkien wrote later, which was a bit more kind of astronomically, um, you know, yeah. uh, astronomically sound and things like that, but also <laughs> very philosophically different. <laughs> very. Um, and, and again, if you want to hear what we said about that, go back to episode 19. Wow, that's um, going way back. That's, that's very that. far back. And Let's yeah, go to the please, way back machine. Please, yeah, right. <laughs> and please forgive how rough we must have sounded back in that episode. But yeah, I think by then we'd caught our stride. It, it probably, probably so. you know, but not, not like it probably is now. So. But we're getting better all the time, Alan. And that's the hope. I that's think. That's the hope. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Frederick Somebody kept you waiting us. long enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Frederick wrote in saying uh, about this episode, this got me thinking. If we would make a timeline of all events in the Legendarium, what would we add to it? Um, I think it's easy to come to the conclusion that Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, Children of Hurin, those are in the main timeline. Um, but what about some of the stories that contradict these? Um, things like hmm. Tuor's coming to Gondolin, uh, the story of Aldarion and Arendis, both of which are from the Unfinished Tales. Um, should these be considered as history in that same timeline, or should they be considered more like legends within the universe? Huh. Well, you know, I'm not sure that those that those two stories that he gives the examples of are examples of stories that contradict the main timeline. So, I mean, that's going to kind of get us to where we're going. But, um, you know, first off, by now, since the time when Frederick originally asked this, sorry, Frederick, <laughs> yeah. you've waited a yeah. long time. Um, we've kind of explained where we stand on some of these, but we want to recap yeah. and, and, and answer the question clearly. You know, it, it's pretty clear that we both consider Tuor and his coming to Gondolin to be historical, not to be a legend, yeah. but to be historical truth. And we treated it as that when we discussed yeah. Tuor's story back in episode 41. Right. I, I frankly say the same with Eldarion and Arendis, uh, which I really – I'm looking forward to when we get to that in Unfinished Tales in five years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and most of the rest of the stuff – uh, in Unfinished Tales about the Second Age. Celeborn and Galadriel is different. Um, yeah, that's a you different know, one. The, the challenge there is there are explicit contradictions. That's an example of a story that does contradict the main timeline. Yeah. And not only yeah. are there contradictions with the Legendarium as a whole, there are even some different contradictory alternatives within the tale itself. So right. you couldn't even accept all of that story as historical. You just right. have to understand that it's a process and that he was working through that to develop mm -hmm. what the final version would be, and you have to just pick and choose. Kind of pick and choose, yeah. yeah. Well, and then, you know, in in that's a perfect example, because in that Celeborn and Galadriel section is where you get yeah. things like the story of Mithrelis and Imrazor. Oh, that's right. Which, uh, which uh, if you recall, I was pretty quick to write off as a legend. <laughs> yeah, so was I. Um, but then, uh, you know, some of our listeners on Facebook actually pointed out, you know, there's actually a passage in Lord of the Rings that suggests it probably is yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, kind of looking at that again, I thought, well, yeah, actually, I I think it's still intentionally a legend, but it's probably mm -hmm. a true legend. I, I shouldn't have written it off quite so quickly. Um, 
as for, you know, if you look at something like History of Middle-Earth, you know, mm-hmm. there's so much there. We tend yeah. to use the later books as references a lot just because they were written later, and they, they really do expand on the published Silmarillion. When you, when you go back and look at the earlier books, um, especially, you know, the first five, right. those, those preceded the published texts. They're, they're largely earlier versions of the published stories that I would say generally we would say end up being replaced or superseded right. by the published texts. I mean, and I'm way oversimplifying this, but sure. I mean, the reality is it, it, it does kind of vary from piece to piece, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, you know, generally where the incomplete material, the, the, the unfinished tales, for instance, where they're mm-hmm. consistent with the completed material, we tend to think of it as being part of the history, historical truth. Sure. Um, you know, when it's in, when it's contradictory, we generally don't. I mean, that's yeah. that's really the guideline. That's the measure. So the completed published material is the measure by which anything else can be mm-hmm. defined, and yeah. that ends up being supreme. So if it contradicts, then no. Then um, we go with the published, yeah, or, exactly. the, or the completed published material. Yeah. Yeah. But but even that the big five, stuff, you can say exactly the big <laughs> the big five. or the big three, technically. True, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, the incomplete material, though, can still be useful to help us understand what Tolkien was thinking. That's that's yeah. where I really find the value. You just have yes. to be careful how you use it. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example. The um, the Fall of Gondolin, let's say, in the Book of Lost Tales, that's a super complete version. It's a lot mm-hmm. more complete than what we get in Unfinished Tales and certainly anything the, else, really, the paragraph yeah. in the Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we want to use it because it's complete. But there are things in there like the mechanical beasts Melko used that were basically mm-hmm. first-stage tanks and personnel carriers. They don't really fit with the later Legendarium, so you have to be careful. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I would definitely say I, I agree with that. I mean, um, <clears throat> we just don't consider it history if the incomplete material is contradictory. I guess that's right. probably the quickest way to say yeah, it. It really is. But, uh, but like you say, it does illuminate the published version. I think another good example of that is uh, some of the stuff we brought in from the Lay of Lathian. In our uh, in our Baron and Luthien episodes, you know, yeah, um, yeah. some of that is a little contradictory. Um, some of that is um, just maybe just a little bit different version. But man, you get some really good details there. And if you if you kind of pick and choose which you know which parts you want to take, I think you you really you really enrich the story. Yeah, you do. It's it's interesting to consider whether um, you know if Tolkien had had you know more time, all the time in the world to work on these things, if he would have worked in some of these, you know, early versions as, you know, let's say in-universe legends, you know, mm-hmm. um, we, he talked about, he talks in some of his letters and I think in Morgoth's Ring about um, how some of these stories from the Silmarillion are mannish versions of mm-hmm. elvish originals. Right. Um, and that some of them did get corrupted over time. And, and I wonder, I would love to think that, you know, maybe somewhere we could have gotten, in, you know, something kind of like we got with The Hobbit Chapter 5, you know. Uh-huh. Oh, this other version was just a lie to cover up the truth, or this other version was just a <laughs> mistranslation, you yeah, know. Yeah. I would love to imagine that. Um, it's it's great to think of a world where we could read the Book of Lost Tales or, or read about, you know, Tavildo, Prince of Cats, and, <laughs> and think of that as a mistranslation of, oh, you know, of the real story. That would but, be nice. um, you know, I, I, that's, you know, that you can only, you can only really take that so far. You know, that's not, yeah. that's not what we ended up with. Uh, it, no. w- it would have been great if we did, but um, but unfortunately, it's uh, <laughs> we've, it we've got the text we've got. That's true. Well, Frederick, that was a great question. Thank you for sending that in. Folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast, the first episode yeah. of our second season. As always, thank you very much for joining us. Be sure to join us again in two weeks when we finally get to the first chapter of the book that started it all, The Hobbit. 
It is really hard to believe we're already here. And at the same time, it feels like it's taken forever to get here. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yes, the wait is over. An unexpected party begins in our next episode. Spoilers. <laughs> well, all right. I guess it's not really unexpected anymore, is it? No, that's true. But I, I guess a, you know, a long expected party doesn't really work for this book. No, no, true. <laughs> Folks, we, we really want to encourage you all to read along and take notes in your own copy of The Hobbit. So check out the official library tab at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. Sean's worked really hard to update the page, and we've got links to inexpensive paperbacks as well as like the good stuff for your Tolkien collection. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, today is the last day to get in on the first batch of custom-made Prancing Pony podcast t-shirts. That's right. Uh, so be sure to check out our social media if you want one. Uh, and also, uh, if you wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes for us and leaving a review, we'd certainly be grateful of that. We would. Uh, we would. As we've said many times before, these re- those reviews help us get more visibility in iTunes. And that, that just translates to a bigger and a more vibrant Tolkien community. Absolutely. And make sure you never miss an episode of the Prancing Pony podcast by subscribing to our podcast through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can find us in most any podcast directory, or if you like your podcast the old-fashioned way, the RSS feed is on our website. And we want to thank all of you who have become part of our social media family. Uh, We set out to start a Tolkien conversation that everyone could join, which is why we have our online common room on the Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast. And on Twitter, at Prancing Pony Pod. Did you just say on the Facebook? <laughs> makes Did I? Probably. 20 years older than you probably. are. Probably. <laughs> it's on the Facebook. It's We're on the, on fa- the Facebook. We're on the Facebook. Whatever. Uh, one last thing <laughs> as always, folks. Don't forget to send your questions, comments, or invitations to tea with seed cakes, if you have any, to barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Now, that's a new email address, so be sure to jot it down. Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com and we'll try to get them into our next episode. Well, an hour 45 is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. <laughs>